Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. For more information about our church, visit EdenWorshipCenter.co. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Join us now as we study through the gospel of Mark, the first of the New Testament gospels to be written. Our prayer is that as you follow along in your Bible, the gospel will come alive in your heart and you will see Jesus more clearly. With me, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. Continuing in our series on Mark, this morning we turn to this passage that I think many of us are familiar with. As the children are brought to Jesus and then by his very disciples turned away from Jesus. So Mark chapter 10, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 16. When you found it, would you stand together with me as we show honor to the word of the Lord. Mark 10 verse 13 says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking again this morning, Would you, by the power of your word, speak words of life into our hearts? Lord, would you let our understanding, our knowledge of you, God, be opened up. Let us see Jesus for ourselves more clearly. Let us see the world around us in the light of that gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So Jesus' ministry is plagued with Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, religious leaders who would constantly seek to sabotage and undermine his ministry and his teaching. This passage is completely free of those people. They're not here. There's no Pharisees, there's no scribes, no religious leaders to mess up what Jesus is doing, but luckily he has his disciples to do it for him. And in like fashion, I want to be honest and say, I think there's a chance that uh, for some of you, I'm going to sabotage my own sermon in my first point. And I would beg to you, don't leave me, all right? So uh, we're going to tread on some difficult ground. Don't leave. Don't, Don't run away. So verse 1, or verse 13, first verse we're looking at, it says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. Now, one of the things we have to fight against when we read the Word of God is us reading into God's Word our own ideas, our own cultural understanding, our, our own, uh, this is what I thought about God's Word before I got here, understanding of what it's saying. Because our culture treats children completely different than the culture in which Jesus was speaking. In Jewish culture, children are actually pretty insignificant until about the age of 13. At 13, there were, there were all these religious rituals to help them uh, come into adulthood. Uh, one of the uh, 
problems that these ancient families faced was written down by a guy named A.R. Cologne. He wrote a, a book called The History of Children. It said, one-third of all children born in ancient Rome. Ancient Rome was the most civilized of all of the nations, all of the peoples in that time. So Rome was fighting for all of these uh, human advancements. Even in that culture, one-third of all children born in that time died before the age of 10. You're talking about a, a time of huge infant and child mortality where it just didn't do you any good to set all of your hope on these little ones. In fact, for many of them, they wouldn't even name a baby until they were somewhere between a week and a month old. And there's many cultures today that continue to do that. There was this constant fear of losing them. And even in, even in the Jewish culture, uh, Jewish boys weren't named until that eighth day when they were circumcised. And yet, I don't, want, I don't want you to hear within that there was an unimportance because God has made the human heart as God has made the human heart. Amen? So it wasn't the parents had this ability to disconnect. It was more that in that time and in that day and age, there were dangers. And so one of the things that they sought more than anything was this blessing of God on their children. And so you see throughout all of the Old Testament uh, instances of fathers blessing their children, putting, putting their blessing on them, especially uh, you think of laying on his deathbed and blessing all the sons of Israel, prophesying over them. that There was this father's desire, this patriarch's desire to bless his children. There was also in this culture a desire to have your children. And remember, we don't, most of us live with that fear and panic that these young parents we're living with. Some of us have been touched by that and can testify that it is heartbreaking. And so they would, they would want to take their children to be blessed by the most prominent rabbi that they could get to. And so here we see them bringing them to Jesus. This was not a photo opportunity because they wanted to put something on Instagram. This was a, des here, here within these parents, this desperate Need, please bless my child that my child might live and prosper and be one of God's people. There's a desperateness in this that you see reflected even in today as we bring our own babies to be dedicated. In different parts of the church where they have covenant infant baptism, I'm not talking necessarily about uh, baptism where they believe that that saves them, but where they, they recognize sort of Presbyterian church, uh, that they are part of this covenant family of God. And they're, they're coming saying, God, put your seal upon my child. We're begging for your blessing. And yet, oh, how times have changed. The mantra of today is we don't want to force our children to go to church. The stories that we hear of Jesus at eight days being circumcised and taken to the temple and Simeon praying over him happened because even Mary and Joseph recognized we need to take this baby to be blessed. And yet now, most families say, well, we don't want to force our kids to go to church because we were forced to go to church as a kid and it didn't work out that good for us. I want to talk about that just real quick. So if someone would lock the doors just real quick. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> We have, a, we have a tendency to think that we can force someone into believing and being saved. And let's just say right up front, it doesn't happen. Okay? So take a big, deep breath in case you thought that was your responsibility. You cannot affect that on the part of your children. And yet there's a lot of other things that we don't have any problem forcing our children to do. We force them 
to go to school. Now, apply the same model, and this totally doesn't even work, because I was forced to go to school as a kid, and I hated it. I'm never forcing my kid to go to school. Oh, that's kind of the same argument, right? Uh, we force them to brush their teeth, because if you don't, it's gross. <laughs> we force them to take a shower, if you have boys. Uh, and force them to eat real food and not just junk food, to do their homework, to go to bed on time, to obey the law, because we love them, right? Now, not because we can force them for the rest of their lives to do that. We cannot. At some point, they will, by God's grace, move out of our house, right? At which point, what we hope is we've built in some good habits and pattern into their life where they say, this is important for my life going forward. Are you tracking with me here? So we can't make our kids go to church and become Christians, but we can help them establish good patterns in their life. Because if we don't, we recognize the risks. One of the things that I hope as good parents we are doing is being disciplined with our kids about social media. Because there are multiple parents out there who are oblivious that there is a social media world. They have no idea what their kids have on their phones and that what they might be into. And I, I want to just hit pause in the middle of this. And those of you who force your kids to go to school, those of you who force your kids to brush their teeth because you care about their future, you need to force yourself to have the same apps on your phone that they have on their phone. And if they're not friends with you, they don't get to have them on their phone. And if they don't give you their password, they don't get to have a phone. Are you tracking with me? I didn't hear any amens from the kids. Just one came a little late. Uh, here's the reality. There is a danger that is lurking out there wanting to consume your children. And parents just go, it's no big deal. They're all right. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Parents, you need to fight for that. It goes deeper, though. And I realize that this is sensitive material one of the things that has changed in the last few years is a tendency towards elevating other things, especially sports, above their priority of their walk with God. And I, I want to just acknowledge right up front, we've been there, right? We had uh, two daughters who were playing in AAU leagues since they were little kids. And if you know how that works, they, they start as little kids and the demand is real low. And then it kind of grows and grows. But here's, here's the danger. A lot of us have made the mistake of, it's not just I'm not forcing you to go to church, but I am signing you up. I'm paying for you to play. I'm traveling with you to watch you play while simultaneously preventing you from being part of the church. Are you tracking with me? Now, I want to say 45 times we've been right there. Right? So this isn't any accusation, because if you're there right now, it's probably because of our example, which we should probably repent of. Are you, are you with me? Okay. So don't run for the door yet. Here's, here's what happens. Let, let's, just, let's just follow this a little bit. We start off when they're young. This was what happened to us. You start off when they're young. The frequency is low. The demand is low. The demand on weekends and Sundays is non-existent. In fact, I remember when our kids were little that uh, my wife, we were actually helping coach one of the teams, and we told the league, we're not playing on Sunday morning. Don't schedule us on Sunday morning. We won't show up. And we're like, yes, we're taking a stand for Jesus. 
And then they get older, and there's more teams and more leagues, and then they look at you and they go, <laughs> we don't care if you don't show up. So then you go, all right, we got to show up. But there's other things that we can do. And then as it, as it goes, you start seeing college scouts there, and you start seeing, as your kids get older, college dollar signs of how much college is going to cost me, and this is how I go about getting a scholarship. And, and by the way, this is how colleges work anyways. You, you go to the big colleges, and they're going to be traveling every weekend for sports anyways, right? This is the argument that I've made for years. I'm just saying it's a bad argument. One of the reasons it's a bad argument is because uh, statistics say that 80% of Christian kids who go to college will walk away from their faith. 80% will walk away from their faith when they go to a secular college. Is there a chance, just a chance, that there's something that those colleges are doing or teaching that undermine their connection and their commitment to the church and to God? If the answer is yes to that, our next question should be, why on earth would we want to emulate a model of how things should be done when they're young that might cause them to walk away even earlier? Folks, I, I pray that you're not hearing condemnation, but a strong warning from parents who've been there. This is dangerous. Next thing you know, it's not just the kids, it's you. You've been traveling with them. You've been gone with them. Now you feel super disconnected from God's people, from the church. And, and let's be honest, you've, you've started drifting in your own walk with God. And some would rise up and go, not me. Okay, great. You're the solid family who's able to stand firm on the road. And my, my question is, how about everyone who watches you? And I'm going to challenge you in just a second. Maybe you're not actually the solid family that you think they are. Here's, here's what we see in the desperateness of these parents breaking in in an uncomfortable situation, and that is we will do everything we can to bring our children to Jesus. Parents, listen to that one more time. We will do everything that we can to bring our children to Jesus. That means gathering together and sitting under the teaching of the saving gospel. It means singing together psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It means driving them back and forth to youth group or Bible studies or fellowship events. It means sending them to children's church where they hear the gospel. And, you know, I'll just be honest with you. One of the things that we, we are constantly praying about is, God, is the way that we're doing things at this church actually creating more of a problem than solving a problem? It, does the fact that we send all of our kids off to children's church actually make it more difficult when they're teenagers and then we send them off to youth group? Does it make it more difficult for when they become adults to feel like this is how I transition into being part of the body? Man, we got to be praying about that stuff because our desire is not just that our kids show up on a Sunday morning. It's that while they're showing up, they meet Jesus. That's why the most important thing isn't even that showing up on a Sunday morning. It's you modeling and teaching in your home, this is the God that we worship. And some of you look at that and you go, I don't even, I don't even know where to start with that. You can start by just somehow regularly just start reading the Bible together. Have some devotional thing. We've got uh, one resource we've started putting on the church Facebook page for you, the New City Catechism, which is a really, really simple teaching of what are the, the basic things that we believe. It, it's for 52 weeks, so it's one sentence per week that we are believing about who God is 
There are so many of those resources. Now, the person may go, now, hold on. You just said that if we're that family that's traveling and we're gone, we're going to get disconnected. Yet you just told us how we could have a resource and we can do it ourselves. Just honestly, from experience, I would say, yeah, that's great, but you don't. And when, when you do try, it's hurried. It's hurried while everybody's doing their hair to get ready to go. It's, it's while everybody's getting dressed to go out the door. And you have a, a mini five or ten minute devotional that makes you feel really good and spiritual. And yet, let's be honest, even if that does happen, it lacks all of the depth of meeting together. It lacks all, lacks all of the accountability, all of the connection with other believers. And so I, I want to just say something. This is not a thus saith the Lord. You're not going to find this in the word of God. This is just from a pastor's experience, and it's this. As soon as possible, stop teaching your kids to prioritize other things about worship other than God. As soon as possible. As soon as possible, make it the aim of your family to say, we will worship God above all other things. And for those of you who are feeling kind of high and mighty, because you're not the parents who have your kids in sports, but occasionally you have really long weeks, and man, it just feels good to sleep in. I would ask all of us, what does our pattern of worship teach our children? Because right now you are teaching your children. Through your consistency or inconsistency, you are teaching them something. Verse 13 says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. The disciples prevent these children, they prevent the families that are bringing them from coming to Jesus. Now, now just think with me here for a second. Let's ponder the insanity of this situation. Imagine on a Sunday morning that we're having a baby dedication. And as the parents, the proud new parents, and a baby who's usually crying at some point, that's how baby dedications work, right, are making their way up and the family's coming up, our elders hop up and stop them and, whoa, 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 stop, stop. No. What we're doing on a Sunday morning is way too important for you to come and do this little sideshow thing. Right? We're about preaching the word. We're about singing things that are true about God. We're about praying together that we're not about like just spending time with your little baby right here. So go take a seat. That sounds crazy, right? That would never, ever happen. And yet, here's what I want us to fight for. Did you notice it didn't say, and Peter said, because Peter says crazy stuff all the time. And Peter goes, don't bring your children. And all the other disciples, right, this is, this is verse like 13 and a half. Uh, all the other disciples looked at him and go, Peter, shut up. No, this is unanimous because this is the same type of thing that you and I would have said if we were there. Because it, it was probably less of a scheduled thing and more like an impromptu baby dedication. We're in the middle of the service. They start streaming up, Jesus, will you please bless my baby? Jesus, will you please bless my little one? And now, as soon as one couple does it and another couple sees them, now you have a queue that starts, and it's going halfway across the thing, and the, the elders are thinking, we're never, ever going to get to the rest of the service. We've got to cut this off. Stop. Go back to your seats. Is that starting to make a little bit more sense? And Jesus, in the midst of what would make sense to us, rebukes his disciples. They were saying, this is important. Jesus' time is limited. And to be honest, in their day and age, these children were not 
that important. And so it says that the disciples rebuked them. It's not a word we use very much. Uh, It's a combination of two Greek words, which means to suitably esteem or value. In other words, you are not getting this right. You don't see how valuable and important what we are doing and what Jesus is doing in his time. You're not suitably esteeming that. Go sit down. It's a strong, corrective word meant to make them feel shame for what they have been doing. And here's the problem with that. It wrongly characterizes Jesus' ministry because it wrongly values human dignity and the worth of those made in the image of God for whom Christ came. They say you're messing up and you should feel bad about it. But what is Jesus' response? (laughs) This is great. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant with them and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Jesus was indignant. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but indignant is not a Facebook status. Uh, of all the emotions and little, little symbols, uh, they don't have indignant. It, it just, it, it's not something that, again, we use a whole bunch. And again, it's this combination of two Greek words. It means much grief. It means I'm seeing something, and as I look at it, I feel much deep Grief, it means to be moved with emotion and anger. This is the only time in the Gospels that we're told that Jesus felt like this. Out of all the stories of Jesus running into Pharisees and and other people that were causing him problems, it's the only time that we hear that he is indignant. This word shows up in a few other places, though. In Matthew chapter 21, the religious leaders see this procession coming into the temple. And Matthew 21, verse 15 says, When they saw the wonderful things that he, Jesus, did, and they heard the children in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They turn to Jesus and they say, Don't you hear what they're saying? And they were indignant. Don't you hear? It's blasphemy. You can't praise a man like you praise God. And the truth is, if it's not Jesus, they're actually right. But Jesus is God. And so he responds to them, Matthew 21, verse 16, and Jesus said, yes. Have you never read that out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise? That God is calling something out of these little ones, but seeing it made the Pharisees indignant. We're, we're kind of used to Jesus being ticked off at those guys, right? Uh, religious leaders who through their teaching are preventing people from coming to God. Matthew 23, verse 13, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. We, we've seen Jesus be angry at the money changers, in the temple, as he goes and cleanses the temple. John chapter 2, if you want to look it up. Preventing people, again, you have this, this sense that it's preventing people from coming to God. 
that there was this exchange where uh, there was a temple tax where you, you couldn't use your money. You had to trade it in and use the temple's money, except that cost you a lot. And then you had all of these offerings that you had to buy in the temple because if you brought your own, it didn't count. It's not certified. So you have to buy it, only that's really expensive. So you're preventing all these poor people from coming. You're ripping off the body of Christ. And if that's not bad enough, all the places where they're keeping all these things are out in the court of the Gentiles because the Gentiles aren't allowed inside the inner court. Only Jewish men were allowed inside there. So the, the Gentiles are out here. The women are out here. Except all of your space is taken up with tables and vendors and selling things. The things that are preventing you from coming. And Jesus says, I've had enough of this. And he flips the tables over. And the disciples remember that verse that said, the zeal for the house of the Lord has consumed me. We're used to Jesus being angry with demons. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. And so he has these confrontations with religious leaders. He has these confrontations with people preventing people from coming. These confrontations with the demonic. But don't miss this. This one time where Jesus is indignant, his anger is squarely leveled at his disciples. Don't miss that. It wasn't a sinful anger because Jesus was sinless. And the Bible tells us, in your anger, do not sin. So it is possible to be righteously angry, although you and I don't pull that off too often. Right? But can't you just hear the cry of his heart? Didn't I just tell you? Didn't we just have this conversation? Mark chapter 9, verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And now it's you. You're the one preventing them from coming to me. It's not Pharisees this time. It's not merchants in the temple. It's you. So verse 14, he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you. The word truly, by the way, is the, the word amen. This is true. This is trustworthy. This will happen. Every time we say amen, it's saying this is true, let it be. So he's saying this is true. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. This passage should make us ask a couple questions. One is, what does it mean that the kingdom of God belongs to those such as these? What does that mean? And secondly, what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Let's actually start with the second one here. Receiving it like a child does not mean that Jesus is pointing us to some childlike characteristics and saying, you should do this. Childlike innocence, childlike love, childlike trust and obedience. We see this in advertising all the time, don't we? With these two little kids who are, are face to face with something and they say, uh, prejudice or hatred is taught, it's learned because these little kids look so loving. That's a snapshot, and every parent of little kids knows that's inaccurate for most of life. Because soon after that, one of them took the other's toy, and then they tried to bludgeon them to death to get it back, right? 
Because <laughs> hatred isn't learned. Anger is within the heart of a person. Right? Proverbs says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod will drive it far away. So he's not saying children are innocent. He's not saying children love better. They're more obedient because God knows they're not. On the contrary, uh, although children are cute, right? Let's acknowledge that one. Children confirm more than anyone else the doctrine of sin. <laughs> These are sinful little creatures who we dearly love, and we thank God that he made them cute. Otherwise, maybe we wouldn't. I don't know. I, we're not that good. Uh, so one of the difficulties we have in thinking about this, remember, we're not wanting to read into the Scripture our opinion. We have a hard time with that because we live sort of in the Freudian generation where Freud, the, the father of, of modern psychology, had inherited this uh, theory of children and humanity from a guy named John Locke, who lived back in the 1700s. He's known as the father of modern liberalism, and he's the one who came up with blank slate. Have you heard that phrase before? Such and such is a blank slate until something bad happens. Here's what secular psychology says, that we're all born as a blank slate. So basically good. So we all start just basically good. And outside bad things happen to us. Okay, We are basically good, but bad things happen to us and they make us who we are. So I would never... Because I'm a, I'm a good husband who loves his wife and cares for her and wants to be a Christian husband, I would never have yelled at her except something bad happened to me that made me who I was. So I'm not responsible for yelling at you, baby. It's okay. That's the, that's the message, right? Uh, something happened to you, some sort of, of either trauma or other things that we'll talk about in just a second. And so I'm not, I'm not responsible for that. Here's a biblical response. Rather than saying you were born basically good, the Bible says you were born marred by sin and basically bad. This is why Christian psychology doesn't work too well because they start in two different places. Tracking with me? Because psychology says you're basically good. The Bible says you're basically bad. Psalms chapter 51, verse 5. Ephesians 2, verses 2 through 3. Proverbs 22, 1 through 15. Genesis 8. Verse 21, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, they all basically say, your heart is desperately wicked. And that means all of our thoughts and our words and our actions that come in response to whatever situation were not caused by the situation, they were caused by my sinful heart. So just look at your loved one who you're sitting next to and just, just look over at him and say, it was caused by my sinful heart. By the way, this is a great way to end fights and arguments. <laughs> Why are there quarrels among you? <laughs> because you don't get what you want, and so you fight and you kill and you devour each other, as opposed to turning and going, I have a really sinful heart. I'm really sorry about the way I just talked to you. There's no excuse. It's kind of different. Now, modern psychology would reply to that, wait, wait, wait a minute. <clears throat> we changed our mind, which, by the way, psychology does all the time. Wait, we were wrong. See, People aren't actually born a blank slate because now we know that you have been genetically programmed. Your genes program you to act a certain way, believe a certain way, do a certain thing. And that means you can't be held responsible for it because that's the way you were born. It's all predetermined. You're just acting in accordance with your genes. 
And someone who's thinking biblically should respond, uh, you just made the same argument. You said I'm not arguing blank slate, except what you said was, I am a good person, I am a blank slate, and these bad things happen to me, except now the bad things happening to me are my own genes inside of me. So I'm a good person, it's these darn genes. Man, they, they make me want to do this. And so I'm not responsible. My question is, where does that logic stop? If that's the way you look at the world, where does it stop? Well, I'll tell you, one of the unfortunate places, and it stopped here this summer, to an Indiana boy named Brock Taylor Turner. He's 20 years old. He's going to Stanford University, and he was convicted of rape and made a permanent sex offender because he found an unconscious Stanford girl who had drank way too much alcohol, and he raped her outside beside a dumpster because that's the most intimate, loving place to have sex with someone. Yeah, disgusting. This is sinful human heart. So Brock, who's 20 years old, is sentenced, convicted of rape, and his dad, at the sentencing hearing, testifies for him. And I want to read this to you because this is the same argument his dad uses. He, this is a quote. He says, Brock's life will never be the one that he dreamed about and worked so hard to achieve. Can you hear, my little boy is good in that? My little boy is a blank slate. He started off good. He had good intentions. He wanted good things. Now his life's never going to turn out like that. But listen to what he says. This is a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action out of 20 plus years of life. He was a good kid for 20 years. Yeah, for 20 minutes he brutally raped that girl behind a dumpster, but he's basically good. He's good. That was his actions acting upon him. There is no end to this logic. And here's the worst thing. The prosecutor was pushing for a minimum of six years in prison, and the judge listened to this idiocy and gave him six months, and he did three and got released a long time ago. Here's what Jesus says in this passage. That will never work before God, the righteous judge. It doesn't work. You, you cannot come before God and say, God, I have, I have been a really good person except for this and this and this, but those are just moments of my life. I'm basically good. And God says, I don't think so. Otherwise, Christ would have never had to die. So the first question, back to that one, what does it mean that the kingdom of God belongs to such of these? Well, he's not saying that children are intrinsically good. I believe what he's actually saying is children are intrinsically helpless and dependent. Peter Bolton, his book, The Cross from a Distance, says, for the least in society, anything children have comes through receiving it. Jesus points us here, not that children are automatically, and I actually, in preparing for this sermon, came across a pastor who pointed to this verse, that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, and he said this means every child is automatically saved and goes to heaven. I think that's really dangerous, because Jesus isn't saying all children are automatically in because they're pure. That's the underlying assumption of that. But that children, by the by the virtue of their helplessness, need saving. You are helpless to save yourself. You need saving. You are helpless to defend yourself, to, to provide for yourself. You need 
another to do that on your behalf. And unfortunately, if you go through our online news archives, you'll find they are littered with stories of parental neglect of dependent children and the devastating effect that that has on little ones who are forced to fend for themselves. So just in case you, you have this in the back of your mind, like, no, really, children have this purity, this ability to really, like, if we just get back to being like a child, man, that's, that's where real purity comes from. That's the opposite of what Jesus is pointing at. And there are tragedy after tragedy of what it looks like when a child is just left to fend for themselves. 2013 in New Jersey, the police found a naked four-year-old boy who was locked in an apartment with his mother's body. She'd been dead a long time. And the only thing he had in the house that he could get to and eat was a bag of sugar. And so when they found him, this four-year-old boy weighed 26 pounds. The officer who found him said this, quote, he looked like he was from a concentration camp. He was that skinny. I mean, I could see all his bones. And as they talked to the child, why didn't you eat anything else? Was there any other food in the house? This little four-year-old says, yeah, there was plenty of food in the refrigerator, but I can't open the refrigerator. Because children are helpless. And unless someone does it for them, they cannot enter. The LA Times from 2013, a mother was arrested for starving her four-year-old child who weighed 18 pounds. Fox News, 2015, a mom arrested for her one-year-old son who was found weighing only 14 pounds. San Antonio, Texas, 2003, a four-year-old boy dies on Christmas Day. Four-year-old weighing 16 pounds. His father was imprisoned for murder and his mom was a heroin addict. He was left to fend for himself. This is not what Jesus is pointing at. As this is the ideal, he's saying children are helpless. It is the responsibility of the father to send the son, to rescue them, to ransom them. This, by the way, is why abortion is such an atrocity. We're in the, in the middle of the Sanctity of Life week. There was this giant march for life. And here's the argument that you hear again and again. Because the fetus, which, by the way, is Latin for unborn child, so I don't know why we all freak out about that, uh, is dependent on the mother. His or her life doesn't really count because he's dependent on the mother. So two things. Number one, uh, I didn't have time to put it in my notes because I just found the article yesterday. There's a study that came out this week. And if you go to the church Facebook page, there's a link to it where they found if you take a one-cell fertilized egg. So the sperm, the egg have united. There's the zygote. It's one cell, and it's separate from the mother. No stimulation to divide. That cell knows what to do, and it starts the process of dividing and growing all by itself. So here's the question. When is a child autonomous from its parents, able to live and grow from its parents. Because if you put it in the right fluid, that baby will grow for a certain period of time all by itself. And they found from moment one of conception, that baby is a different life. It just happens to be depending on the mother for survival. It happens to be depending on the mother for nurturing and protection. And that's the whole point. Children are 100% dependent on us from pre-birth to when they're newborns or even a few years old, they're dependent on you and they contribute nothing. Did you hear that? They're dependent on you and they contribute nothing 
to their own life and sustaining. And Jesus says, if that's not how you come, you don't come at all. The hymn writer said this, Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. I can't bring anything to God to offer. Uh, God, if you'll just see me through this rough time, if you look forward, I can really be a help to you. It's not what he's saying here. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. It's actually that, that real. It's that serious. Verse 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, if you have your Bible open, look back at it. If you don't have it open, open it back up. Read this verse for yourself. Don't hear my voice say it. It's one of the most difficult verses in the entire Bible. It's one that gets dismissed by so many. And I don't want you to dismiss it because you heard it from me. If you want to dismiss it, dismiss it because you read it in God's word and said, I don't believe that. That's on you. <laughs> verse 15. Jesus says, truly, amen. This is true. Let it be, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. Did you hear that? If you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you shall not enter it. George Whitfield, the great American preacher, said, Man is nothing. He hath a free will to go to hell but none to go to heaven. By the way, that's the best answer to the whole sovereignty versus free will argument I've ever heard in my life. Man hath a free will to go to hell and none to go to heaven until God worketh in him to will and to do his good pleasure. That's gold right there. Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So here's my question not just to us as a church, but to the church in general, when will we stop looking to charlatans and heretics who by their message deny the gospel salvation comes through Christ alone and instead offer you your best life now to those who just think a certain way or act a certain way or fulfill a certain list of sacraments, but instead, when will we say, simply to the cross I cling, helpless look to thee for grace, Wash me, Savior, or I die. Jesus says, if you don't receive the kingdom of God like that, you don't enter it at all. Guys, this is why it's so important. This is why I belabored this point at the beginning, begging you, do whatever you have to do to bring your children to Jesus. And do whatever you have to do. Make it a priority above everything else. And that doesn't just mean uh, being sort of this holy, self-righteous, well, I don't do this so my kids can go to this. How about all the way through your, your week as you're at home, model what it looks like for you to love Jesus, for you to be a Christian father, a Christian mother who points their kids to him. And do whatever you have to do. Worship team, if you guys would come on up. We're going to respond to the word of the Lord by taking communion together in reminding ourselves 
again, that we have been saved by grace alone. We've been made the children of God by his grace and not by our earning. And I I want you to just think about something. Not everybody gets a seat at my table. Now, periodically, uh, we may invite some people over who may sit down at my table. They may eat with us. They may share with us. They may fellowship with us. But it's only my family who has a reserved seat at the table. Same thing in your house. Isn't that how it works? When you do sit down together, everybody kind of has their assigned seats that they go to. Because that's part of what it means to be part of the family. There is a place prepared for you. So I want to say two things about that. Number one, to our non-believing friends who may be here today. I think it's a little dangerous to preach to a congregation and assume that there's no unbelievers in our midst. I would say to you, graciously consider the mercy of Jesus. Listen to this. The mercy, the grace of Jesus, who would be angry at those preventing you from coming to him. It's that kind of Jesus that we're looking to. Not the type of Jesus who angrily looks at you and excludes you, but who angrily looks at those who would prevent you from coming, hearing the good news, seeing your sin, turning from your sin, turning to him for forgiveness. And when that's prevented, that Jesus is angry with them. That is great love. Considering this is the God who knows every secret thought of your heart. And yet he chose to love you and to die that you might be saved. Consider that he is calling you. Consider that he has been calling you even when you didn't want to hear it. It's the call that you keep ignoring, you keep hanging up on, and he keeps calling. So as we come to take communion, I I would encourage you, if you are an unbeliever, if you are someone who has not trusted in Christ for salvation, has not been walking in faithfulness to God's word, then I would encourage you to not come for communion, but to seek God, to seek his forgiveness, to seek his acceptance that only comes through Christ. And to those who have believed, let's remember how we got a seat at the table. Let's remember how we got a seat at the table. It's not because you heard a sermon and you felt moved in your heart, and so you, you stood up and, and you walked down an aisle and you prayed a prayer. It's not because you've chosen to be a good husband or a good wife or a good child. It's not because all of those things that you are doing is because Christ first chose you, that you have been invited here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Oh, church, don't fall to that temptation to believe you've been brought near because I made a choice to do something 
and get more holy and, and stop being like this. Those are, those are excellent things that God is working in your sanctification, but you've been brought near because Christ died for you, full stop. It's his power to save and not your power to keep yourself. So let's stand. And what better way? I mean, what better way to respond to Christ's call to the church that you come as a helpless, dependent child looking to God for grace or you don't come at all to come to the table and say, Jesus, it's your broken body. It's your blood shed for me that has purchased my seat at this table. It's not my holiness. It's not my perseverance, although I believe the saints will persevere. It is God's work in me that has brought me here. And so as we come, just start at the front, and as we begin to sing together, go back to your seats, and we'll take the elements together. There's wine on your left and grape juice on your right. If you're visiting with us, we believe in a believer's communion. So you don't have to be a member of our church to take communion here. We want you to be a believer in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You've put your hope for salvation in that and that alone. If that's you, we invite you to come.